It's the next level. And now for our lesson. Remember, this is bread. 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 And this is wine. To drink. 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 Good. Good. We are friends, you and I. Friends. <laughs> Good. Good. And now for a smoke. No, no. This is good. Smoke. You try. Smoke. Good. Good. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying, you know, violently? I wonder, like, what would be the most horrible way to die? Well, hello, Mr. Fancy. language intended for adult audiences. Viewer discretion advised. You ever hear of the movie The Wasp Woman? What about Attack of the Giant Leeches? Or Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory? These are all movies that they're bad and they're, I mean, they're entertaining, but they're still bad movies. They could use a remake. Yes, I mean, well, I don't know about Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory, but hey, you know what? You get my point. These are bad movies. They're cheesy movies. Made on a shoestring budget. They deserve a remake. A movie like Scrooged does not deserve a remake. Or better yet, a movie like Black Christmas. Yes, I'm opening up this week's show with a little rant that I'm entitling Why We Don't Need Another Black Christmas Remake. Because I'll tell you this right now, the original, 45 years later, is still relevant in this world. And it's still entertaining people. We don't need another remake. The 2006 remake, that was a CW Christmas. That wasn't Black Christmas. I mean, I give them credit, at least when they, you know, made the poster artwork and everything, it said Black Xmas as opposed to Black Christmas. So, yeah, okay, whatever. And I'll be honest with you. I don't hate the movie. It's not good, but I don't hate it. I do watch it every year. But he, So, Bloomhouse Studios, or Bloomhouse Productions, whatever you want to call them. I don't know. I guess after the success of Halloween, you know, they got a really big ego. I don't know. So, we're going to remake Black Christmas, and they completely surprised everyone with this. Nobody saw this coming, and then all of a sudden, poof! Hey, look it, we got poster artwork and everything, and we're announcing we're doing Black Christmas. And better yet, oh, here, here's the good kicker. We're going to modernize it with empowered female characters. Okay, so how many of you, I know, I know the answer to this, but how many of you have seen the original Black Christmas? The Black Christmas made by Bob Clark in 1974 that starred Olivia Hussey as an empowered female character. I, I don't get it. Like, that movie, okay, what with especially what's going on in the United States right now with all these anti-abortion laws and everything, 
Black Christmas was pushing that envelope well back in 1974. The whole idea of it's a woman's body and she will do what she wants with her body and a man's not going to tell her what to do with her body. This was something that was going on in 1974. This movie is still relevant today. It does not need a remake. The idea of a woman not listening to an authoritative figure. The cops are telling her to get the hell out of the building and instead she turned around and said, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving without my friends. I'm going to get my friends and I'm going to fight whatever's in this house. That was a strong female character. We don't need a remake in 2019. I don't know how you plan to modernize the themes of this film any more than what they already were. It does not make sense to me. I don't get this. I don't understand why we keep remaking films that you could easily re-release in the theaters today and people would go see them. Here in Windsor, we have what's called like Flashback Film Fest. And they re-release films that were, you know, big in the 80s and the 70s and whatnot. People go to this all the time. What was it, uh, two weeks ago? They just had Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. People went and saw it. I won't... It, episode one of this podcast was about Gremlins. My, myself and my sister went and saw Gremlins at the theater. People will go see re-releases. Especially if the stories are still solid, if they are still firm. They have a point for existing. And Black Christmas, to this very fucking day, still has a place. It still has a great story. There is no need to remake it. We don't need a remake. I appreciate that someone wants to homage the original. That's nice. But it's not necessary. It really isn't. It's not a necessary remake. It's like Pet Cemetery was not necessary. The 1989 version still holds up, and as a matter of fact, is creepier than the new one. I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't. I do not understand why we are constantly remaking movies that already have stood the test of time and are still viable. They're still great films. Texas Chainsaw Massacre has not needed any of these fucking remakes that it's had. Nightmare on Elm Street did not need a remake. I don't know. Someone, please, remake the Wasp Woman. <laughs> okay? <laughs> remake something that's deserving of a fucking remake. Because I don't want to keep ranting about this. No. As a matter of fact, I want to move forward. I want to move on. Because, coming to you live from Studio Zero and the Next Level Podcast Network, it's your... Favorite podcast from the grave, What, what Lurks, Lurks Behind, Behind podcast, podcast Zero. Zero. And I am your host, Postmortem Paul. And this is the 47th episode. We're almost at 50. Not there yet, but almost. But this is episode 47. Episode 47 is doing a little time traveling this week. We're going way back, 84 years back, to 1935. James Whale's epic sequel to the original Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein. But first, alright, I I don't want to rant. I don't want to rant. I already did that. I ranted about Black Christmas. I'm not ranting again. So I'm just going to give a quick recommendation. Lurker's recommendation for something that actually took me by surprise. I really didn't think I was going to like this movie. I thought it was going to be cheesy. I mean, I figured I might be entertained by it, but I didn't think I would actually like it. So Shudder has an exclusive film right now. It's uh, an Australian horror film. I, I don't know if horror is the right genre for it, but it's a, a monster flick, so to speak. It's a creature feature. It's called Boar. And it's anything but a boar. Uh, I was actually pretty impressed. It's uh, it's funny. I mean, it. You have Bill Mosley, with his American accent, surrounded by Australians. It's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but actually, it was a pretty decent flick. A uh, bit of gore, nothing crazy. Um, but there is some gore. There's a couple scenes where you really have to suspend your disbelief. 
but eh, isn't that all horror films when you think about it? I mean, the one we're talking about, or me and my multiple personalities, I gotta stop doing that, I don't know, because I really don't have many multiple personalities on this show. I have me, post-mortem, and I have Rantman at the beginning of the episode, and that's about it. Um, but anyways, whatever. Uh, this week's episode, to get to what I was saying, you have to suspend a lot of disbelief for a movie like this. So, I mean, eh, it is what it is. But getting back to Boar, uh, Nathan Jones is, uh, he's, he's the highlight for me. I mean, as much as Bill Mosley is a lot of fun, like, Bill, Bill Mosley is just, I don't know, it, it's funny when I see him play, like, a character that is, like, on the straight and narrow if you know what I mean like like he's playing like this like stepfather who's trying to fit in with this family and you know he's not it you're you're not talking chop top here you're not talking Otis Firefly like he's he's trying to be like just a, a nice good dad and it just seems funny watching it um but again the movie is movie was surprisingly fun I actually really really enjoyed it so that's my recommendation because I really don't have a whole lot else. I mean, there's another movie. Okay, I'm going to mention it, but it's also going to be a future episode on the on the podcast, so I don't want to talk too much about it. But I did finally watch Attack of the Killer Donuts. Not going to lie. That was interesting and fun. And what the fuck? I need more of that in my life you know like there's a lot of Hollywood films and as I said earlier a lot of remakes that just aren't hitting the mark these days and then you have this stupid little movie called Attack of the Killer Donuts and there's just something magical about it I, I it was a bad movie but you know what with a title like Attack, Attack of the Killer Donuts you know what you're walking into you know what you're getting into so why are you questioning how stupid this movie's going to be? Like, we're talking CGI donuts, okay? With, like, fucked up teeth. Like, you know what you're walking into. So, I don't know how you complain about a movie called Attack of the Killer Donuts. But people do. Whatever. It is what it is. I complained at the beginning about Black Christmas. Because, I'll be honest with you, I don't even think it's going to be, like... Black Christmas. I think this is it's from the sounds of it what they're what they're doing with this movie. It sounds like it's like a Charlie's Angels Christmas with maybe like Billy the Killer. Honestly, it, but I keep jumping back to that. As you can tell, I'm a little bitter about it, so I need to drop it. Which I think the best way to drop it would be to just move on to the movie review of the week because I have a lot to talk about. There, it, this movie, um, this oh. It, there's a precious place in my heart for this this movie, um, and it for a lot of horror fans. I mean, it's funny because you think a movie like 1935, what with today's films always trying to modernize everything, and I mean this movie has had its spinoffs and or not spinoffs, but like attempted remakes and whatnot. I'm not even going to mention them this week, but none have come close to this. And like I said, this movie's 84 years old. And it stands the test of time. Now, what doesn't stand the test of time, though, is that in order for me to have a break between now and the movie review, I can't play the trailer. The reason why? Trailer is just music and sound effects and the monster. You know what I mean? Um, It's a hard one. I, 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 I was looking for a trailer that maybe like someone maybe did like a fan edit, you know, and gave some narration to it or whatever. Nothing. So... I'm going to play a little clip. I'm going to play a clip from the movie. And then when I come back, then I'll review the movie and talk about different things that I got from the movie. And I don't want to talk too much. I, I just want to just, just play the clip. So, back in a moment. It is interesting to think, Henry, that once upon a time, we should have been burnt at the stake as wizards for this experiment. Doctor... I think the heart is beating. Look, it's beating. But the rhythm of the beat is uneven. Increase the saline solution. 
is there any life yet? No, not life itself yet. This is only the simulacrum of life. This action only responds when the current is applied. We must be patient. The human heart is more complex than any other part of the body. Look, the pace is increasing. Yes. It stopped. Shall I increase the current? This heart is useless. I must have another. And it must be sound and young. Carl. You must go to your friend at the accident hospital. What we need is a female victim of sudden death. Can you do it? You promised me a thousand crowns. It will be well worth it when the Baron will pay. Yes, yes. Go and get it. I'll try. Not gonna lie. In a small way, I relate to that clip. The, 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 the whole idea of the heart is dead. I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to have a dead heart, man. It sucks. It's like game over, man. No, okay, I'll shut up. No, I won't shut up. But hey, all right. The whole dead heart thing, just, it hits a note. It really does. Fuck all that shit. It's time to talk about The Bride of Frankenstein. So, The Bride of Frankenstein. It's gonna be so weird talking about this movie because, like, its premiere date was, like, before even I was born. Before even my mother was born. Like, I think my grandmother was alive. But that's about it. Like, it's just weird. It's kind of cool, though. I like talking about these old movies. Anyway, so The Bride of Frankenstein. The premiere date for The Bride of Frankenstein was in Chicago on April 19, 1935. It then had a limited release the following day on April 20th. But its uh, theatrical, like its uh, widespread theatrical release wasn't until May 6th of 1935. So any one of those three dates is basically right. Uh, The runtime for the film... um, Now, the version I have... Maybe there's multiple versions that that I didn't know of, but mine was like 73 minutes long, yet on IMDb it says it's a 75-minute long movie, so I don't know. Maybe it's 75 minutes, whatever. But mine was like 73.28 or something like that. Anyways, and it's a black-and-white film. There's no color to this movie. And and to my knowledge, nobody ever went and tried to colorize it. I don't know if you guys have ever seen uh, the 1968 Night of the Living Dead, but colorized. Wretched. Um, so, yeah, thankfully, to my knowledge, no one ever tried to colorize this. That's a good thing. The director for this film, Mr. James Whale. Oh, what an amazing man. Uh, he gave us the original Frankenstein in 1931. He also gave us The Invisible Man, The Old Dark House, which I believe right now is on Shutter. Uh, the Man in the Iron Mask and Green Hell are just some other films that James Whale has done. He he had quite a few directing credits. I didn't get the actual number, but I know he had quite a few. Uh, so the idea of The Bride of Frankenstein is based on a concept by Mary Shelley. It's um, in the book, if I remember correctly, which, God, I read the book when I was, like, in high school. But I believe there's, like, in the book there was, like, I. I there's a scene or like a moment where the monster basically says he wants a mate and they kind of like are like no that's not going to happen and nothing ever happened from that this film was an, a continuation as if Mary Shelley had written a second book giving the the monster a mate so that's where the, the, the whole, it, it, like I say, it's based on a concept, but it's not actually based on a work of Mary Shelley's. The story was written by William Hurlbut and John Balderston, and the screenplay was done by William Hurlbut. So the film was produced by Carl Lemel Jr. His producer, he had 156 credits to his name. Uh, lots of films. All Quiet on the Western Front, Dracula, Frankenstein, Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Black Cat, Bride of Frankenstein. 
and many others. Showboat was his final producing credit. Now, the funny thing about Carl Lemmel Jr. was he almost bankrupted Universal Studios. He made a lot of movies. He, like I said, he produced 156 films. But the problem was, was most of his films never made any money back. So he, he basically got kicked out of Universal Studios, uh, what they basically called a hostile takeover, because he was losing the company money, or like losing the studio money, and they almost had to bankrupt. So kind of interesting there. The music, music for this movie was by Franz Waxman. Uh, great score. It's an amazing score. Uh, you can even uh, listen to clips of it on Spotify, uh, as well as YouTube and many other areas. Uh, he's done other films that I, I, I kind of got a few credits down. He's Bride of Frankenstein, obviously. Um, a Christmas Carol in 1938. Uh, the version that starred Reginald, Re, Reginald Owen, Gene Lockhart, and Kathleen Lockhart. Uh, he also did Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1941, but he did a lot of like film noir projects, a lot of crime dramas and whatnot. He did uh, the movie Possessed and Dark City in 1950. Uh, quick credits to costume design by Vera West, art direction by Charles D. Hall, and the cinematography was by John J. John J. Meskel, who apparently was rumored to have been drunk throughout the filming of uh, Bride of Frankenstein. If he was drunk, uh, give the man more liquor because, well, more on that in a bit, but let's just say for a man who was drunk, he did a fucking great job. <laughs> uh, your starring cast, the cast of characters, which in this film is really cool. <laughs> It, at the beginning of the film, they list the cast of characters, and then at the end of the movie, it says, a cast this good needs to be said uh, again, or something to that effect of, like, it, there's nothing wrong with repeating this at the end of the movie. So it was pretty cool, because if I remember correctly, most older films, they only wrote the credits at the beginning of the film. There was never end credits. It usually was the end, a Universal Studios production, and that was the end of it. You really didn't have end credits. There was no such thing as an end credit scene. Like, the end credit scene was the end. <laughs> like, that was it. So, this was one of those few movies where they had the, the cast of characters listed at the beginning, and then they redid it again at the end of the film, because the movie, it, it's, this movie's amazing. I'm, I'm not going to fucking hide it. It's a fucking amazing movie. I'm not going to make you hold on till the end and what did he think of this movie? I fucking love this movie. So, starring cast. Boris Karloff as the monster. Notice I did not say his name is Frankenstein. He is the monster. And, I mean, okay, Boris Karloff, honestly, do I have to tell you what movies he's been in? Because, I mean, you know the name. The, the, the dude's, like, synonymous with classic monster movies and horror films. But... Anyways, so Boris Karloff, you can also see him in The Mummy, Scarface from 1932, I believe it was, The Old Dark House, The Ghoul, The Black Cat, The Raven, Son of Frankenstein, The Ape, The Boogeyman Will Get You, House of Frankenstein, The Black Castle, Abbott and Costello Meet Jackal and Hyde, and of course, I'd be crazy not to mention this one. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You don't see him, you hear him. But hey, that's all we fucking need. His voice is amazing. Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein. He's Dr. Frankenstein. So, before I mention some of the movies he was in, I'm going to say something. He died at a very young age. He died at the age of 37 in 1937. He was born in 1900 and died in 1937. It's really a shame because he's actually a really good actor. But, yeah, he was in the original Frankenstein. He was in Bride of Frankenstein. Um, another big-name movie that he was in was Mad Love. But, honestly, I think he had something like 16 acting credits or something because, like I said, died at a very young age. So, it's a shame, but at least he gave us this this is a it's such a great movie uh valerie hobson as elizabeth and 
if you saw the original Frankenstein, which, if you're listening to this, I assume you've seen both, uh, she replaced May Clark. May Clark was in the original as Elizabeth. Uh, in this film, it was Valerie Hobson. Valerie Hobson was only 17 years old when she uh, did this movie, and she plays Elizabeth, which is uh, Henry Frankenstein's bride-to-be. In the same year, 1935, she was also in uh, movies The Werewolf, uh, Werewolf of London and Chinatown Squad. Um, she's pretty good in this. Uh, she chews up the scenery a bit, but hey, you know what? She she was a solid replacement for May Clark. I, I, I personally do love the original, um, and May Clark was definitely great in the original, but Valerie Hobson does a great job playing Elizabeth in this film. Now, one of the uh, characters that I really like talking about, Ernest... Th- okay, I'm going to try and pronounce his name, his last name right. Ernest Theziger, who plays Dr. Pretorius. He's the... He's probably the mad doctor that's more mad than Dr. Frankenstein himself. The guy is fucking amazing in this movie. Uh, he was also in other films that I wrote down, like The Old Dark House. You notice that one keeps coming up a lot. Uh, the Ghoul in 1933, he was in The Murder Party, The Ghosts of Berkeley Square, and A Christmas Carol, he was The Undertaker in the 1951 version with Alastair Sim and Mervyn Johns, which in my opinion is my favorite version of A Christmas Carol. Uh, I, the Alastair Sim one, Sims one is, is fucking amazing. Now, Elsa Lanchester as Mary Shelley but more so as our bride. And she's awesome. I will talk more about her in a bit, but other films she was in, Terror in the Wax Museum, Arnold, Murder by Death. She was in the film Willard in 1971, but probably one of her other biggest roles was in the movie Mary Poppins with Julie, uh, was it Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke? Is it Dick Van Dyke? Yes, Dick Van Dyke was in that one. Uh, she played Katie Nenna. But yeah, she was in that. Uh, moving on, Gavin Gordon as Lord Byron. Uh, he's not in this movie much. It's pretty much the very beginning, and that's about it. Uh, same with like Elsa Lanchester. Actually, is not in this movie a lot. But in the beginning, she's playing the role of Mary Shelley. Well, Lord Byron is the one who's asking Mary Shelley, what really happened with your story? Is there more to the story of Frankenstein? Well, anyways... Other films he was in, he was in Mystery of the Wax Museum in 1933. He was uncredited in White Christmas from 1954, the one with, uh, what is it, Bing Crosby? Uh, He was General Harold Carlton in that. He was also in the movie The Bat in 1959. One actress that I have to mention because, holy shit, was she in addition to this film. Una O'Connor as Minnie. (laughs) And if you've seen this movie, you know Minnie. Um, Other films she's been in, she was in The Invisible Man. She was in The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Canterville Ghost, The Bells of St. Mary's from 1954 with Bing Crosby and Ingrid Bergman. She was, uh, what did I see? Something like 75 acting credits, maybe, possibly even more. I didn't write that down. I should have. Um... Other actors that are in this as well, uh, Dwight Fry and Marilyn Harris, both return in this movie. They were in the original Frankenstein. They return in this film, but they play, they're play they playing different characters in this film. Uh, Dwight was originally Fritz in the first Frankenstein movie. In this movie, he's playing Carl. <laughs> Fritz and Carl. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I, my favorite role of Dwight Fry's, in my personal opinion, was when he was Renfield in Bela Lugosi's Dracula. I always enjoyed him in that. Uh, Marilyn, Marilyn Harris, uh, she was little Maria in the first Franken, uh, Frankenstein movie. Uh, you know, the little girl that died and whatnot. But um, technically, uh, in in Bride of Frankenstein, she's uncredited. She was just a girl. Uh, but they allowed her to come back for, you know, a small role just so she could be part of uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, O.P. Heggie played the hermit. The hermit scene is one is an absolute joy. I, I used a, a clip of it at the very very beginning of this podcast. Um, he he's his whole scene with 
with Boris Karloff was so fucking great. I'll talk more about that in a bit, but um, unfortunately, he passed away after the release of Bride. Uh, he was 58 years old when he passed away, but he was also in films like The Count of Monte Cristo. Monte Cristo. I always want to say Monte Crisco. It's not Crisco. It's not fucking lard, okay? Like, what the hell? The Count of Monte Cristo and The Return of Dr. Fu Manchu. He was in both of those as well. Other actors that are in this movie. I know, I just keep going on with the cast, but uh, this is the end of it here. Uh, so, <laughs> the, um, the there's three cast members who weren't big in this. They played very small roles. Uh, one of them, a very small, small, small role. But years later would go on to do bigger and better things. Uh, John Carradine is in this film. Walter Brennan is in this film. And a very young Billy Barty. Billy Barty was a baby in this movie. No, no word of a lie. Like I, when I said small, small role, he's, he's a baby. Um, now, we all know him, that he would go on to play Gwildor in Masters of the Universe. I know, crickets. <laughs> because he's done so much else, and that's the one role I go to, Masters of the fucking Universe. But yeah, um, so it's kind of cool when you, when you look over the cast for this movie and you see names like John Carradine and Billy Barty, who would later on go on to play bigger roles... And I mean, Billy Barty, of course, like played them in his adult years, and in this, he was a baby. So it's it's kind of cool. The budget for the film was three hundred and ninety-seven thousand dollars. The gross was two million, which I think I read somewhere that if if you were to convert it into funds in twenty nineteen, the gross would technically be like twenty nine million. For a horror movie, that's not bad. That's not bad. I mean. Keep in mind, I mean, nowadays with movies and with the promotions being a lot bigger, I mean, a lot more people would probably go see this movie. I mean, unless it's like part of that whole dark universe that just completely failed. But anyways, so I'm going to move on to the synopsis and then my thoughts. So the synopsis, God, do I want to do this again? Because last week's I tried to put some pizzazz to it and completely fucked it up. But we'll try it again. After recovering from injuries sustained in the mob attack upon himself and his creation, Dr. Frankenstein, played by Colin Clive, falls under the control of his former mentor, Dr. Pretorius, who insists the now chastened doctor resume his experiments in creating new life. Meanwhile, the monster, Boris Karloff, remains on the run from those who wish to destroy him without understanding that his intentions are generally good despite his lack of social socialization and self-control. Okay, it wasn't as bad as last week's. I don't know why, for some reason, whenever I try to put a little oomph in my synopsis readings, it never works. But if I just read it blandly, like, after recovering from injury sustained in the mob attack, it's like, I don't fuck it up, but it just doesn't sound that good. So, anyways... Enough of my synopsis readings. What the fuck? So, my thoughts. My thoughts, and also I kind of grabbed thoughts from other people because, I mean, like, seriously, this is hailed as one of the best sequels for any movie of any time. Like, people have, like, challenged this movie up against Godfather Part Two, Empire Strikes Back, Aliens. I mean, and I can honestly say I don't disagree with this. Yes, the movie is dated. Yes, it's uh, 1935 and, you know, it didn't have the special effects that we have today and whatnot. But, I mean, honestly, in terms of story, this is a fucking good movie. Um, James Whale didn't even want to do this movie initially. Uh, he really didn't. He he wanted to just do other projects. He wanted to leave Frankenstein as Frankenstein and that was it. Uh, Universal, though, Gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. No, um, because I mentioned Godfather. But, uh, no, they they promised him full creative freedom. And he was like, seriously? Like, you're going to let me do whatever I want with this movie? And they're like, yep, it's all yours. So he eventually bit and began filming in 1934. And as I said, it was released in 1935. Uh, as much as Boris Karloff was amazing in the first film, this one's better. He is a lot more seasoned as as the character of the monster, 
And despite his hesitance, because he really did not want them doing this, adding a bit of dialogue to his character actually helped his role. Like, it really helped give Frankenstein a more fleshed out feeling. It really made, or not Frankenstein, but the monster. Maybe we'll call him Frankenstein. I don't know. I call him Frank myself. But I know there's the whole thing of, you know, like, He's technically the monster, but so many people have called the monster Frankenstein and whatnot. I don't know. Even I catch myself making that mistake from time to time, so whatever. But, yeah, adding the dialogue, it gives it it, an added sense of humor. And at the same time, it it fleshed out his character a bit more and really helped. Don't get me wrong. His silent acting is really good. But constantly having the monster go... I mean, it's like, okay, it does have a brain. Like, I'm not saying the brain is great, but the brain is there. Having It, it showed that he could learn, though, and that I thought that was interesting. It's a, a good added uh, bit to the narrative. The setting is... Setting is very well put together. Um, I mean, you can tell it's, it, it's in a studio. Back in those days, every movie was filmed in a studio. There was... I, I don't think there were too many films that actually went outside of a studio. But, I mean, it's not bad. It looks... Uh, as Same with the fashion designs. It looks very Victorian, very gothic. I mean, this is hailed as one of the greatest gothic horror stories of all time. Um, and, and that's why I mentioned about the costume design of Vera... Uh, what was her name? Vera... Shit... Uh, Vera West, Vera West. I wanted to say Vera Cruz. I'm like, I know that's not it. Um, Vera West did a wonderful job with the costumes. Um, I mean, some of them look almost like, like gypsy, gypsy-ish. <laughs> the women look like they're dressed like gypsies. Let me put it that way. Because if I try to say it the other way, it just... <laughs> okay, so... Fashion design looks great. The setting looks great. The cinematography now, especially near the end of this movie. Holy shit. Okay, so like I said, supposedly the cinematographer was drunk. Okay, he was drunk during the whole filming of this. Give the man more granddad sauce. What the fuck? The cinematography in this movie is amazing. Like, some of the shadow work. And that's what I really enjoy about this film, especially near the end of the film, when we're seeing close-ups of Henry Frankenstein or Dr. Pretorius. They, the way it was filmed in the shadows really make these men look like grim, scary men. And it's done very well. Um, I mean, and, and some of, like, the, the shots of, like, you know, like like when Frankenstein is running through the woods and whatnot. Again, like, you know it's a studio. But just the way it's filmed, it still looks very good. And that, one of the scenes I actually, I actually really love in this movie is at the very beginning when Lord Byron is talking with Mary Shelley and they're in, like, this giant, almost, like, cathedral-sized room. Like, you know, Victorian housing and whatnot. But it's the way it's shot and the lighting and, and the shadows and everything is done so well. Like I said, if if the cinematographer was drunk, I don't fucking care. Let the man drink. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, the music score, because I always talk about the music. The music score, I don't think Waxman was drunk. If he was, okay, well, hey, again, let him drink. <laughs> That's going to be the subtitle for this episode. Let them drink. Uh, but no, um, the music score is wonderful. It, it Definitely a, a wonderful addition to this second part to the story. Because technically, it, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein basically go hand in hand. It, it, one takes off where the other one leaves off. So Waxman's score is beautiful. What I really enjoy about his score, though, is that even though at times it's very haunting and menacing, there's also times where it's almost like exciting and it's like like jubilant and it's like it just <laughs> we don't see that very often in in films these days where you can have both a happy score and a darker depressing or scary score in the same movie. You don't see that very often these days. Usually if it starts off dark, it ends dark or if it starts off like you know, triumphant and great. That's usually how the, the the themes last throughout the film. So, 
Waxman does a great job of doing both and bringing it to this movie and he makes it work. And I love that. Um, so, <laughs> something I'm going to try to get through <laughs> very quickly because I don't want to piss anyone off, but it's something that I feel I need to address. Because, okay, director James Whale, he was openly gay. He didn't hide it. He was gay. Some of the actors in this movie are gay. Uh, Ernest Thesiger and Colin Clive were gay or bisexual. Here's the thing about it. It wasn't something that needed to be checked off in a box when the movie was being made. And I say this because we're seeing this. It's happening too much now. I have nothing wrong with inclusive casts. I have nothing wrong with mixing black, white, transgender, gay, straight, male, female, dog, cat. Like, I, Trust me, I have no problems with this. But what happened to making a movie with a good story first? Instead, there's a movie coming out, uh, Bloody Disgusting was promoting it, a movie called Bit. And it's apparently feminist, lesbian, empowering, gay, transgender movie. Okay, uh, that's how it's being promoted. Why are we checking off boxes? What's the story? That's what I want to know. I, I don't... I don't mind if there's gay characters or if there's straight characters or black characters or white characters. For me, what I want to see, I want to see a good story. This movie tells a good story. Yes, and I'm I'm not going to lie, filmed at a time when, yes, no black people in this movie. I know, it's all white cast. I get it. Don't get me wrong, I get it. But when it was being promoted, it was being promoted as... The haunting gothic story continued. It was being promoted as the sequel to the original Frankenstein. It was not being promoted as a movie that allowed gay actors to play roles. And that's what that's the thing that's what I'm trying to get at is we need and not just in the horror genre. This is happening everywhere. It's happening in every genre. It seems like when movies are being promoted, we're being we're being told what they've included in the movie as opposed to or the TV show as opposed to what what are the themes of this story? Bride of Frankenstein there are themes of acceptance, love, death, playing god and playing matchmaker. Um as well as a great story of discrimination and hate and fear, but done without having to check boxes. They just allowed the story to tell its story. And so many people can relate to the story in this film. And that's, what, that's why, for me, this is a film I definitely wanted to talk about because we are seeing this way too much. This idea of that we have to check off certain boxes for a movie to be allowed to be presented to an audience. You know what? Don't don't make it a target audience. Just put it out there. Those who want to be attracted to that movie will go to that movie. They don't need to be told, oh, by the way, we are including a transgender, a gay, and an oriental man in this movie. And also, you know, empowered females. When I watch a movie like Halloween... I know what I'm getting with that movie. And I didn't need anyone to tell me what kind of boxes were checked for this. That it was a slasher flick. That it had a female who would come out in the end and be the final girl. That would have a doctor and a psycho. And this, and, and granted, I get it. Probably a bad example because there was no gay characters or anything like that. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Perfect example. The main male lead was gay. Openly gay. And there's a lot of gay connotation an exposition in that movie it didn't stop me from loving it and i didn't need to be told that going into the movie so i, I that's a better example for me anyways moving on from that i, I just wanted to make that point there's it's a lot not a lot of the reason but it's a, a good reason to talk about this movie because it didn't need to be promoted or put in someone's face you just let actors be actors, directors be directors, tell a good story, and 84 years later, this movie is still loved 
and adored by people. Now, I mean, I, I will say this. Some uh, years later, different people who studied the film and, you know, did theses on the film and whatnot, some have speculated that the character of Dr. Pretorius actually was gay in the film. But it was never something that was highlighted. It was never something that was pointed out. Um, it's sort of subtly hinted at. And again, it's something that modern storytelling needs to go back to, is that let it be subtle, let it be there, let people get what they want from the film, and stop checking the boxes. Let's tell a good story. Moving on. If you noticed when you're watching this film that Henry Frankenstein, the doctor, Dr. Frankenstein, is sitting a lot in this film. Um, for quite a bit of the filming, he actually had a broken leg. Um, he suffered from a horseback riding accident. So there was quite a, a, a bit of the film that he was sitting, which in actuality made perfect sense in the movie because his character was recovering from being tossed like a rag doll by the monster in the first film. Um, I mean, he's recovering from injuries of, from that first film. So it, it worked. It was something that like, he was able to still play the role, even though he had a broken leg, and get away with it because of what the character was going through at the same time. So I thought that was interesting. It's something that, like, it, it was something that was brought to my attention about a year ago, actually. I never knew that up until about a year ago, so that was kind of cool. Uh, the special effects. Okay, the special effects in this movie are way the fuck ahead of their time. I mean... Here we are in 2019. We've seen Lord of the Rings. We've seen the trilogy. We saw how they made the tall humans look like short little hobbits and dwarves. But in 1935, the scene where Dr. Pretorius has the little miniature people in the jars, that was unheard of in 1935. People had no fucking clue how they did that. I don't even know if it's ever actually been, like, documented how they did. I'm sure it's been somewhere. I have never personally seen it myself, but I mean, I'm sure nowadays in 2019, I'm sure we can figure out how they did it. But the whole idea of he's got the seven jars with the, the little miniature people. And in 1935, that was fucking mind blowing. People were like, how the fuck did they do that? Again, like I said, in 2019, we're spoiled. We had Lord of the Rings. So, you know, We've seen shit like that done before. We've seen them. We saw in um, what the Avengers: Age of Ultron, I think it was. I think no, Civil War. In Civil War, when Robert Downey Jr. you know looked like he was like twenty years younger than he was. Um, we've seen cool things like that, but that's twenty nineteen. We have all those technological advancements that can make movies look and do what they do. Um, in 1935, that was mind-blowing. That, it, it, and it, to this day, it's still considered one of the greatest special effects feats of, the, of that time era. And not to mention the shots of bringing the bride to life, like with all the electricity and the, the raising of the, 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 the gurney that she's on and whatnot, all that sort of stuff. And we saw it in the first film, but this film had a larger budget. It had a lot more to work with so they could make it look even better, even darker, even more amazing. So it, for 1935, breathtaking for that era. Sorry, I had to use that word. Um, <laughs> okay, and speaking of the bride. So I said earlier that Elsa Lanchester, God, first of all, what a beautiful woman. God, she's gorgeous. Um, but okay, so here's the thing about Elsa Lanchester. She's not in this movie that much. She's in the beginning as Mary Shelley. And then she's only in the film as the bride for maybe two to three minutes tops. Maybe. That's it. Um, great performance nonetheless. Like she's got like that, the, the weird quirky movements with her head and like her facial expressions. Like very well played. Um, but it's her movements. It's the way she's, she almost is acting like it's like electrical jolts are going through her body. At like, but at sporadic times, so that's why like her body jerks like that and whatnot. It's very, it looks very awesome, very well done. Um, she was only five four, like five foot to, uh, four when, um, well, when this was filmed, she was only five foot four, <laughs> period. Um, so they had to make her look taller, so she was on stilts 
that made her uh she was about seven feet tall when when she would be standing on the stilts um as as well as like the hairstyle the hairstyle um it was held together with a wired horsehair cage um which is kind of cool like and i mean like they, they had the white through it and whatnot because they had to make it look like she got jolted which again awesome for her to think of like the whole idea of like the sporadic like movements and whatnot because well hey i you know got jolted with electricity very very well thought out in terms of how she played the character and whatnot um so a few other scenes i just want to quickly mention about okay the hermit scene when we see the monster meets the blind hermit what an amazing scene because you had a man with no sight, so he is simply going based on how the monster is acting towards him. And we see that the monster has a gentle side. I mean, we know that as the audience. The people in this movie don't realize that. So then you have a man who can't see what the monster looks like. So he's not, he's not driven away by the hideousness of the monster. And what a beautiful scene of friendship. What a beautiful scene of okay, I understand you can't speak. I'm going to help you speak. I'm going to, I, I'm going to teach you etiquette. And he teaches him etiquette. And he, he, th- there's a whole idea of like, and I guess a lot, uh, some like scholars and whatnot would say there's like a lot of uh, Christianity, that uh, like themes of Christianity in this movie. And in this scene, we kind of get that with the whole idea of, you know, the bread and the wine. But then we also have the smoking scene, which is hilarious because in in 2019, all you have is like ads everywhere. Don't smoke. Quit smoking. And in this movie, it's smoking is good. Smoke, we want to smoke. Here, smoke this. And it's fucking hilarious. I love that scene so much. It's very heartbreaking when the two hunters show up. And like the monster hunters show up and and they want to kill Frankenstein and he's like no he's my friend he's my friend and it, it it's a heartbreaking but a beautiful scene because it shows that sometimes beauty is not something that we always see it's something that we feel and, and very well done the the themes and the way this movie is done so it it's just a gem it really is a gem uh the addition of mini now mini is the part of the film where you can have fun ripping this movie apart holy fuck seriously someone chill that woman out like oh my god she's like oh she's a fucking trip but at the same time her voice is so annoying she's got that high squealing voice and oh my god the monster's coming and oh it it's so hard to deal with, but at the same time, she's fucking hilarious. Her overacting. Oh, my God. Like, she's not dialing it up to 11. She's dialing it up to, like, 51. But, but oh, my God. Her acting is a gem at the same time. It really is because it helps to break the the, the seriousness of the movie. Uh, again, it brings the, the humor, which the dark humor of this movie, very well done, very subtle. But man, it makes its point known. Like uh, watching the, and, and the scene where like the monsters it, again. He's you know the the citizens are attacking the monster, chasing him, and he t- fucking picks up this dude and tosses him straight to his death. And it's, it's like it's you know you see the the fucking doll like because you can tell it's a rag doll that he's throwing. You see it just fall down and whatnot. But not only that, the whole idea of the humor of of you know. Ah, like, like the heart dying and the the idea of creating life again and and the miniature people like even that in itself is kind of like it's interesting and it's humorful and that's that's something else that is lacking in a lot of today's movies is the idea of the humor being subtle. So many, so many movies want to like just slap that humor right in your face, and it usually ends up being a failed cause because you don't really laugh. You're just like, eh, whatever. Um, the theme of wanting a friend, feeling like a misfit, feeling like not belonging, is something that is very relevant to this very day. That is something that is really amazing with this movie. Is the whole idea of that this story is timeless. This story still works in 2019. The idea of feeling like we are 
isolated, feeling like nobody understands us. Everybody thinks that we're, you know, we feel like there's an idea of paranoia. And the monster, the the Frankenstein monster, portrays this so well. It's so well done. Boris Karloff does an, an absolutely amazing, amazing job with this. The one question I do throw out there, though, the movie is called The Bride of Frankenstein. So are we talking about the monster's mate? Or are we talking about Elizabeth? Because the whole idea of Henry Frankenstein, Frankenstein wants out. He doesn't want to do this anymore. He wants to get married. He wants to go live a quiet life. And his wife, his future wife, is taken from him. And the whole reason he gets back into, you know, creating life, so to speak, playing God, is to save his wife, to save his future wife, Elizabeth. So is the bride of Frankenstein Elizabeth? Because she is technically the bride of Henry Frankenstein. Or is it the monster's mate? Because you have Dr. Pretorius who turns around and says, the bride of Frankenstein. It's an interesting concept to think about who is actually the bride we're talking about in the title of this movie. Um I got I to gotta sum this up because, God, I've been talking about this like a, a lot. Uh, it's recommended to watch the original first before you watch this one. Uh, if you watch them together, it's a little under two and a half hours in total. And let's face it, uh, Avengers Endgame was three hours long. If you can get through that, you can get through this. Um, I definitely watch both together. For the purposes of the podcast, I only watched Bride of Frankenstein just to get my notes on it. It's not like I haven't seen the original Frankenstein. I fucking own the movie. So I own all of them. Like the whole Universal Studios box set, I have the whole damn thing. So whatever. I I usually, when I watch Bride, I watch Frankenstein first and carry on in. But So, um, yes, this film does touch up on the theme of playing God again. The whole creating life thing, which you see in the original Frankenstein. But I, I like the idea that they added, <laughs> bear with me on this, the idea of creating the perfect woman um, and what a farce that can be, which that's where a lot of the dark humor comes into play because, honestly, the whole idea of creating the perfect human, whether it be male or female, is a bullshit idea. Um, and it's just funny how they, you know... The heart is dead. Yeah, well, there's a lot of women out there that today would tell tell you that their heart is dead. So um, maybe that is part of the perfect woman. I don't know. Uh, But (laughs) I'm going to get shit for that one. But anyways, um, the whole idea of playing matchmaker as well, like, you know, the, the idea of this woman they're creating to fall in love with the monster, the Frankenstein monster, which is fucking hilarious when you see her reaction to him. Like... She looks at him, she sees him for the first time, and there's like that hideous fucking scream of, and it's almost as if to say like, fuck, no. Um, you feel bad for the monster, you kind of do, but fucking hell, if that isn't the idea of a blind date going wrong, I don't know what it is. And that, that kind of shit's still prevalent today, so it did a really good job with that. It's fucking hilarious, like just seeing her like, oh my god, fucking get the hell away from me, like that look, oh my god. And trust me, I've been on the receiving end of that a lot, so <laughs> I think that's why I laugh about it because it's like, yeah, it, yeah. Never mind. I, my dating life is not important to anyone. Um, while this movie is a dated movie, like I said, 80, 84 years old currently right now, so much of this story still holds up today. The themes are iconic. The themes are strong and they are relevant today. It, this is an iconic film. It's a grand film. Fans of the genre still adore it today. Great filming, great lighting, the acting and the overacting are both a lot of fun in this movie. The music is classic. This is a loved classic film by everyone who has seen it. IMDb gives this uh, gives the movie a 7.9 out of 10, which is actually kind of low. Uh, when you figure that Rotten Tomatoes, it has a fucking approval rating of 100 fucking percent. That's based on 41 reviews. That is astounding and the reviews are all within the average rating of 9.1 out of 10 or higher roger ebert who's you know he usually was pretty 
much a prick about movies. Four out of four. The Boston Herald named this the second greatest horror film of all time after only Nosferatu, which is a fucking creepy movie. What is my rating on this movie? What what do I think of The Bride of Frankenstein? 9.5 out of fucking 10, people. And I almost want to give it a 10. I really do. I, 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 fuck, what am I doing? It's a 10 out of 10, guys. It is fucking perfect. This movie is so amazing. It stands so true, so strong, even in today's fucking era. This movie is a masterpiece, and it is the true definition of masterpiece. This goes right up there with, like, some of the, the, the greatest movies of all time, if not the best movie of all time. Absolutely, it is a wonderful movie to watch. It is an absolute treat. It is one of the few movies that I've watched and I've never fallen asleep to. I am always completely engulfed in this film from start to end. Granted, yeah, it's 75 minutes long. It's not a long movie to watch, but it is great. It is iconic. It is, yeah, fuck my 9.5. It's a fucking 10 out of 10, guys. This movie... Highly, highly, highly recommended if you have not seen it. Of course, I spoil a lot, but it doesn't matter how much I spoil. Still watch this fucking movie. And that's all she wrote, folks. Thank you for listening to the show this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, this movie, again, the last few weeks, I've really had a lot of fun putting these these movies together, these episodes together. Um I apologize for my earlier rant way back at the beginning. Um, Black Christmas is it's it's a it's a prized treasure of mine. I absolutely love that movie. So whenever I hear of a remake, I'm bitter before I've even seen the product. I know it's something I shouldn't do. I don't normally do that, but when I was reading the write up of how they were saying you know an empowered female cast and all this stuff, I'm like, have you not watched the original? <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. Anyways. I don't want to. I don't want to just dwell on that. Um, where to find the podcast? Next episode uh, reveal. Let, let's just end this thing. I got a great song. I'm ending this off with uh, this week too. So I want to definitely jump jump into that. But before anything, where you can find the podcast? TheNextLevelNetwork.com, home of so many great podcasts. Home of this podcast, Podcast Zero, at TheNextLevelNetwork.com/slash/podcast-zero. You can also find the podcast at what lurks behind podcastzero.com. Dot com. Yes. I sound like a game show host, but whatever. Fuck off. <laughs> Facebook. Facebook.com slash what lurks behind podcast zero. On Instagram at what lurks behind podcast zero. Noticing a trend here. Twitter. Oh, here. I'll change it up for you. On Twitter, WLB podcast underscore zero. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Okay, so. Oh, and don't forget, email, email, email. Anyone want to email me? What lurks behind podcast zero at gmail.com. Fuck, it's pretty easy to remember. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, and go on Redbubble and order a shirt if you want. Redbubble, what is it? Redbubble.com slash people slash podcast zero zero is the number not the word okay i really dragged that out pretty long sorry about that guys but all right so next episode next episode oh shit so we go from like epic 10 out of 10 you know fucking movie here where it's like just there's so much amazingness to this movie um the next movie not so much it's gonna be fun to talk about though because i'm gonna rip the shit out of this one I'm not going to lie, I do love the movie, but I also know a bad movie when I see one. And the next movie is from 1979. It's a Roger Corman classic, known as Star Crash. Oh yeah, you can tell right by the title of that movie, Star Crash. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of a movie. Stars the gorgeous Carolyn Monroe though, so that's going to be fucking nice to talk about. But other than that, yeah... I figured, you know what? We went really high. Next week, we're going to go really fucking low. <laughs> but that's enough of that. It's time to close off this epic podcast episode of Proportions. No, um, So I'm going to close off with Bride of Frankenstein. As done by 
when, you guys are familiar with Wednesday 13, I hope. Um, you know, uh, Wednesday 13, uh, leader of the Murder Dolls. He's also got his own solo band, Wednesday 13. But his first band was a band known as the Frankenstein Drag Queens from Planet 13. And the song that we're playing is called The Bride of Frankenstein. Because I just couldn't do it any other way. I had to include this. It's a nice two and a half minute song. It's a cute little ditty. Figured I'd end it out with that. So, without further ado, I'm going to shut my fuckhole now. Or my, my fuckhole? Really? That's what I went with? Sometimes my randomness is a little weird. I'm going to shut my fucking mouth. Just go safer that way. Um, (laughs) And we're going to play the song. So thank you again for coming out and listening to the episode. And without further ado, give you Wednesday 13, some Frankenstein drag queens from Planet 13. It's the Bride of Frankenstein. I'm shutting up. Goodbye. Right. 